So, Mark. Yes. I want you to imagine. Okay. We've talked about this before. Imagination? Yeah. <laughs> what is that again? You Remind conjure me. up an image in your head that is not real. Okay. Sounds fake, but I'll give it a try. The point is that it's fake. We've discussed this. Okay. What I want you to do is imagine that you're running a cult. I thought you said it shouldn't be fake. Well, this cult in particular is dedicated to summoning somebody to Earth to establish dominion over the planet and all humans. Okay. Again, thought you said this was supposed to be fake. A cult like this exists in the movie we're discussing this week. Yes. I want you to put yourself in that situation, but the person that you are summoning has to be a character from a movie we have covered for this podcast. Oh, God. Whom do you want to have complete domination over the planet based on the cult that you are running? Okay, so we haven't talked about Jessica Fletcher as a movie on the podcast. Correct, because she is not in a movie. I know, but in the script, it doesn't say from a movie. It says from We Love the Love. It's very clear. Yep. So you could, for example, summon a character from Netflix's What I mostly just wanted everyone to have a second to think about a world where Jessica Fletcher ran everything. And is supreme dictator and establishes control over all humans. Exactly. Um, I like to picture a world where the shark from Shark Tale. Which shark, though? The Robert De Niro shark? The Jack Black the shark, shark? The Peter Fox shark who Obviously. had to be changed from being Italian to maybe being Jewish? <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Obviously, the gay shark. He's kind of great. That would be a weird society. It would not run well. No, not at all. Just imagine, like, bowing down to a statue of the shark dressed as a dolphin. A dolphin construction worker. Exactly. What about you? I would have to say the trolley driver, just so we could have the song clang, clang, clang. Because he would mandate it as our national anthem. Obviously, in the morning, in the afternoon, at night. The trolley driver seems... Fairly annoyed at the kids singing this song on his trolley. Which seems reasonable. Yeah, which is the right take. If you want the trolley song, you have to choose all of, the children. all of the children on this trolley. If you're playing the music aloud on public transportation, you are the problem. <laughs> that is true. Kids, get your headphones out. In 1910? I've, that's what it takes. Also, I think it's 1904. Close. Even earlier. I was closer than they I imagined. a phone, though. It's just hooked onto a wall. That's right. And whenever you get a phone call, it's a big deal. You need to move dinner earlier so everyone's not sitting around when he calls all the way from New York City just (laughs) to ask you how the weather is. Your dinner of a bowl of ketchup. A bowl of ketchup. Hashtag catch it up. I think for my answer, (laughs) look, we all know I'm pulled in a lot of different directions. Obviously. It's awkward for me if I don't choose my girlfriend, Midge. Fair. Because that puts a weird strain on our relationship. It's awkward for me if I don't choose my wife, Gina Davis in a league of their own. Okay. Because that similarly puts a strain on our relationship. I think Midge would be a better choice, honestly. Midge would be an amazing overlord. Uh, She's an experienced artist and occult historian, as we know from Vertigo 2, the saga of Midge. She has also... Been to space. She's a rocket scientist. She was one of the Gemini astronauts in Vertigo 3, the right stuff. She's seen the Earth from space, which really puts things in perspective. She has played the president before in Vertigo 4 Geostorm. Oh, of course. <laughs> she plays every role. That's right. She also plays the Secretary of State, so she could do diplomacy if that diplomacy involves destroying every other country. And also Tampa? Is the next movie just her moving up from president to so leading the cult in the Overlord? So maybe that's the answer. I was gonna say Howard the Duck. Oh. Vertigo 5, Hereditary. (laughs) Starring Midge. Midge would be good in the Tony Collette role. Yeah. I feel like she could crush it. I was thinking of her, it would just be the same thing, but instead of the statue of Paimon, it's a statue of Midge. 
No, that would also be excellent. <laughs> I mean, I don't think y'all, well, y'all didn't cover this on the podcast, but my favorite cult leader is, of course, Chris Hemsworth in Bad Times at El Royale. Oh, he's so scary. I mean, he's basically Charles Manson. Yeah, he's just he's shirtless. He's too scary. <laughs> I don't hot, want though. that. Mm-hmm. We're choosing someone that we want. Yeah. Those abs, though. Has Crips Hermsworth been in a movie we have covered where he's not an evil cult leader? I don't think we've ever covered a movie that Hemsworth was in. Hmm. Not even the Moby Dick movie? What Moby Dick movie? In the Heart of the Sea. That one. The Ron Howard movie about the story that ostensibly is partially the inspiration for Moby Dick. I have not heard of this, honestly. It did not do amazing. <laughs> it was apparently kind of boring. <laughs> not surprised. Just no. like Moby Dick. If we do a Hemsworth movie, it. it'll be either Thor or Black Hat. I was going to say, <laughs> or the 2009 Star Trek in which he is briefly appearing. What? His father. He plays James Kirk's father. Yeah. Oh. With uh, Jennifer Morrison? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm. Anyway, I was going to say Howard the Duck. Because I feel like that's my brand. He would be a terrible overlord. I don't want him in charge. The latest in the Marvel rumor mill is that he's going to have a role in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. He's appeared briefly in 1 and 2, but the rumor is that he'll actually have, like, a part to play in 3, which would maybe make sense because James Gunn has talked about these movies as being about Rocket, and I think putting two talking animals together might work. This has been your weekly installment of Duck Talk. I think I'm going with Midge. Midge is the answer. All hail Midge. All hail Midge. Hooray! <laughs> Riches shall be showered upon us. Riches of women's underwear. Woo! I don't think I want that. <laughs> I'm sure you could find a use for it. <laughs> Josh, Ariel Grande needs some good underwear. <laughs> yeah, she does. <laughs> and on that note, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is an investigative podcast committed to examining the most pressing, urgent, spooky mysteries of our day. Specifically, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even likable. It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot, or a one-scene flirtation, or a marriage falling apart. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are finishing up our two-part Halloween spooktacular by taking a look at one of my favorite creepy movies, 2018's Hereditary, written and directed by Ari Aster. And to talk about that, we are joined by our third roommate, Josh. Hello. So... This is a movie where I was very scared to watch it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it is very scary. Totally. But also, no one talked about the fact that it was so depressing that it got to the point where I was like, I'm ready to be scared. Because I'm just sad. (laughs) Which is part of what makes the movie work so well, that what you're watching is a deeply depressing family drama where you're like, wow, like just one horrible thing after another is happening to this family, and they're being so hurtful toward each other. And ultimately, what you find out is like, this is all caused by these horrible, horrible, evil things underneath, but also by the way we treat each other. And it's all according to plan. Right. It's that discussion in the classroom, what's more tragic, if you're undone by your own choices, or if you never had the chance Mm -hmm. to affect what happens? You don't have any free will to even get to the point where... You could affect what's going on. Right. Next week, we're going to talk about the Terminator, where Kyle Reese says, the future's not set. You can change what's going to happen. And in fact, in this movie, what we find out is their fate is almost inevitable. Yeah, there's no way of stopping it. Ari Aster, who wrote and directed this, this is his first movie. He talked about the idea being, what if there were a family that felt like they were doomed, but in reality, yes, they actually are. (laughs) 
It's a good starting point. Yeah. It's a good hook. Yeah. He also talked about how one of the things he kind of wanted to do was a family drama, but people don't make family dramas anymore. So a way to hook that in is it's a family drama that's also horrifying. Yeah. Okay, see, for me, like, of course, it was terrifying, horribly so. But the little girl, she would pop her tongue at the beginning. Yeah, this is... Charlie, played by Millie Shapiro. Wonderful acting, but... She actually... This is her first movie appearance. Didn't she you get see, a, it's introducing... She originated the role of Matilda on Broadway. Oh, wow. For which she won a special Tony Award. Oh, good for her. Wow, because that's amazing. Going from Matilda to... Kind of same same genre, This but, is also you know. a supernatural girl. <laughs> yeah. Basically the same character. Yeah. <laughs> so this is Matilda, basically. But no, I with her tongue pops... Uh, exactly. If you've ever met a gay man, they tend to do that a lot. And that just threw me off from the beginning because she popped her tongue and I was, and I was like, ooh, yes, sis, go off, girl. (laughs) Now, Josh, imagine this whole role with instead of Charlie, it's Alyssa Edwards. Uh, (laughs) 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 That's what more, uh, more uh, shows need drag queens, more movies. They just need to throw them in any moment. Replacing only child actors. (laughs) No more child actors, just drag queens. (laughs) So I don't think that's what Ari Aster was going for. <laughs> but it's what he needed. <laughs> All right. So as we said, this is Aster's first movie. He had made a couple of high-profile short films before that, notably The Strange Thing About the Johnsons and Munchausen. And off of those, A24 went to him and was like, yo, you should make a movie for us. And he decided to work on Hereditary out of several screenplays that he had already written. And this movie pretty quickly gets wrapped up in the conversations about what is sometimes called elevated horror, which is the source of a lot of debate in the horror community today, where a lot of horror fans are really grumpy about movies like Hereditary being called elevated horror because they're like, elevated over what? That's like saying other horror is garbage. Which, like, I guess like a pure slasher flick. There is levels within yeah. the horror genre already. Sure, there are different subgenres. And this one is a very good horror film. Mm-hmm. And it's operating in a different kind of zone than the slasher films or things like right. that. Right, exactly. But I feel like movies like kind of like this did exist before. Sure. Same with Get Out. It's just these ones broke into the mainstream more. And I don't know. And if- even like we talked about Gaslight last week, which doesn't have the supernatural element, yeah. but is the same kind of like domestic drama is horrific in its own way right so i feel like talking about elevated horror like it's a new thing instead of just a continuation of good horror movies is dumb i guess less of a new thing and more of a oh we've gotten the mass-produced slasher flick same thing over and over and now like these ones are popping up they're like oh I'm, yeah i'm get, we're getting back to those grassroots and certainly a24 has played a big role in the elevation of these kind of movies right it's just that horror is finally kind of breaking out of a box there wasn't a lot of examples outside of just the pure slasher genre 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 movies especially horror have often struggled to be properly appreciated right and get kind of cookie cutter sometimes but also even when they're not they don't get the attention from critics and scholars that they might and i think i think a24 in particular has done a lot of work to try to change that language. Right. And I guess you could say the same thing about, like, superhero movies and stuff like, just things that aren't thought of as high art or more than what people see them to be. Like, so when an elevator horror movie comes along, it's like, oh, okay. Speaking of that kind of idea, Tony Collette, who is incredible as the star of this movie, had been really resistant to doing more genre work. She, of course, played the mom in The Sixth Sense, an iconic horror role, and 
was reluctant to go back to that thing and was kind of cranky when her agent sent her the script for Hereditary. And as she put it later, it was like, oh, well, I didn't realize they were going to send me the ice storm as a horror film. <laughs> Again, getting back to that domestic drama yeah. idea. She's so good in this movie. She's incredible in this. She's amazing. Mark, I know you know this. Josh, I don't know if you do. I keep a spreadsheet of, if I ran the Oscars, <laughs> what I would nominate in every category. Yeah. And I saw this movie in June 2018 when it was released. And I was like, cool. So this is easily one of my best picture nominees. And it wound up, I think, second or third on my list at the end of the year. And Tony Collette just locked in as my personal best actress winner. And she did get nominated for a whole bunch of critics awards, including the Indie Spirit Award at which this movie was nominated for Best First Feature for Ari Aster. Unfortunately, uh, Tony Collette did not win any major awards. Boo. This is not a movie that the Academy would look at. Oh, of course not. <laughs> it was just never going to happen, no matter how good her performance is. And that is very sad, because mm. there are people in the Academy that seem to just not respect all movies, which is weird. And especially genre movies. If you're in the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, you should appreciate... All, all genres. For every Sigourney Weaver in Aliens, there's a ton of genre performances that deserve attention and don't get it. Right. Now, this movie premiered at Sundance in 2018 at midnight. Mm. And I would not care to watch this movie at midnight and then walk out into January, Utah in the deep dark. Mm. No, thank you, ma'am. It had been produced by A24. They released it on June 8th, 2018. And at the time, that was the widest release to date for A24. It opened on about 3,000 screens. It was projected to gross between 5 and $9 million on its opening weekend. Instead, it made $5 million just on Friday and ended the weekend at about $13 million, which made it the biggest opener for an A24 movie at that time. That's insane. It was nice. really astonishing. It opened in fourth place for a little bit of context on that window in time behind Ocean's 8, Solo, and Deadpool 2. <laughs> this movie was such a phenomenon i remember i was too scared to watch it at the time same same not gonna lie but it was still oh i hit an 11 a.m showing it is it was such a big deal i was shocked how much people were talking about this movie same. honestly like you don't i mean like people are always like oh did you see the new horror film but this one i was like i kind of want to see it because now i need to kind of know what people are talking about and i kept saying i'm gonna go see it yeah. and then i kept not going because yeah. I was terrified. I, we've talked about this before. I've been trying to push myself more into the horror genre. And every year I pick a couple that I'm going to make myself watch. Mm. And I'm very, very glad that this was one because seeing it in a theater was really cool. The greatest moment of it in a theater was the scene where Peter, Alex Wolf is waking up in bed towards the end of the movie. And Tony Collette is hunched in the upper corner yeah. of the wall. <sighs> and in a crowded theater, you could hear each person notice that because it's out of focus in the back of the scene. Ugh. <laughs> now, Mark, it's funny that you talk about what a phenomenon this was in film circles because it was, but it wasn't a thing that audiences uniformly appreciated. Hereditary is famous for having gotten a D-plus cinema score. Really? From opening night audiences. Now, for those of you who don't know, cinema score polls people in major markets on opening night and asks them to grade on a scale from A to F, did the movie match your expectations? So it's not audiences saying whether or not the movie was good. Mm. It's more a measure of the marketing of the movie. And people coming out of Hereditary did not think it matched what they were sold. Yeah. I, I can definitely see that because, like, I thought there would be much more, like, jump scares and stuff. When it was much more, like, just that terrifying dread. Creeping and, dread. Yeah. And th like, thrill down your, down your spine. That was, like, the real thing. Like, it yeah. wasn't even towards the last, like, ten minutes of the film that you got really jump scares. It's been out for a while, and I knew the ending... 
Kind of. But I still had no idea what this movie was yeah. about, weirdly. And it, at the end, is kind of just about a family in crisis. Ari Aster said over and over again in interviews when the movie was coming out that the movie is personal but not biographical. And he would never really go into details about that except to say there was a period in which his family, when he was growing up, was going through a really rough time to the point that he felt his family was cursed. Hmm. Hmm. He's never gone into details about that. It's kind of similar to when Midsummer was coming out this past summer mm-hmm. and he didn't say what it was about in any great detail except to say that it was inspired by a breakup. Which I guess means someone knows what it's about, but we don't know who. And they have not talked about it yet. Which seems reasonable. Yeah. I still have not seen that. It's good. It's good. It is less scary than this one, too. I I need to. I know I need to. Hopefully by the time this episode comes out, the director's cut has made its way into the world. Because I've heard that it is also good. It's longer, right? Yes, indeed. Like, much longer? Uh, Like, 30 minutes? That's a lot for a movie that's already two hours and 20 minutes. Yes, indeed. But that's a movie that I like sitting in. Yeah, I'd be interested to see it. Now, oftentimes, when we talk about horror movies on our romance podcast, there is some fun to be had if we're thinking about the romance of, like, The Fly, for example. Or next week, we're going to be talking about The Terminator, where the romance is not super well-developed. It is weird. But today... I think we're going to get a chance to dig into something really interesting, which is a marriage in crisis. Something that we've talked about a couple of times before. It's honestly fairly common in horror films. Yeah. Even in the more slasher-based ones, I feel like it's a common starting point to have a relationship on the rocks. But one of the things I like about this movie is how we see these, like, quiet moments. Right. Of being out of sync with each other. Mm -hmm. And what I think is important is that Throughout the movie, Annie and Steve clearly care about each other, but they're not able to connect with each other. No. Like, it kind of reminds me of the relationship in The Shining, and only that you're not sure who's going insane, what's going crazy, and like like you said, they're just kind of out of sync at that beginning, and before it just starts to get progressively crazier and scarier, until yeah. you're like, oh, okay, no, 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 something's actually happening. So, I mean, that's the genius yeah. mm-hmm. of this movie, like The Shining, right. is that you spend a lot of it being like, just how insane is this mm-hmm. person going? And by the end, you're like... Probably some, but also the world is insane. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Another movie where the two people in a troubled slash failed relationship are out of sync is The Happening, where they cast Mark Wahlberg as a school teacher and Zoe Deschanel as his ex-wife. Hmm? What job was Mark Wahlberg have? He was a... <laughs> a <school laughs> I can't believe I even said school teacher. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that word. <laughs> It's reminiscent of the film <laughs> Fever Pitch. Oh, the job that Jimmy Fallon the, had. The made-up job. Where you, like, bully kids. Exactly. And you blame stuff that you do on them. Right. Okay. I'm familiar with that. I can't believe I use the phrase school teacher. <laughs> Who even says that? Just you. Jimmy Fallon in that know, movie. Barely me. Ben the school teacher. <laughs> Hereditary. <laughs> so anyway, I just have never gotten over the fact that they cast Mark Wahlberg as a science teacher with Zoe Deschanel as his ex-wife. Hey, you put glasses on anybody, they look like a genius. <laughs> Why do you think I wear them? I actually have perfect vision. I've just gotten progressively thicker frames to convince everyone I'm blind. Hey, stay committed to the bit. So I think the best thing for us to do is to talk about this movie. Now, of course, every week when we talk about a movie on We Love the Love, we are focused on the romance. So we are not going to dig too deep into everything that's happening in Hereditary. We're just focusing on the marriage between Steve, played by Gabriel Byrne, and Annie, played by Tony Collette. Now, Josh... As our guest on this episode, as our hereditary expert, 
expert yes i yeah indeed i don't like that (laughs) you're gonna be in charge of guiding us through this relationship through the five points that are gonna sum it up and let us talk about everything that's going on definitely i can dive right on in then all right let's go so as with many movies especially ones with failing relationships there's one onset moment where things kind of take a turn for the worst so point one charlie dies peter charlie Are you okay? It's hard to breathe. If I may. Please do. Can I jump in a little bit before this? Please do. Point zero. So at the beginning of the movie, Annie's mother dies. We know from Annie's eulogy that she's a distant woman, Mm -hmm. kind of controlling, very frustrating. And in the period after this, we see Steve, Gabriel Byrne, repeatedly making efforts to check in with Annie. Mm -hmm. See how she's doing comforting her, literally reaching out to her in bed. There's a moment when they get a phone call that Annie's mother's grave has been desecrated, and Steve decides not to tell her because he decides, you know what? She can't deal with it. There's a lot of going on emotionally right now. I don't want to burden her with that. So we are seeing some of the ways that this relationship goes with Steve, in particular, really working to take care of his wife. And kind of protecting her from things that he thinks that she can't handle. From the darkness of the world. Exactly. And so, I guess you could say, with Charlie's death, there's really no protection from that at all. Yeah, so in point number one... Their daughter, Charlie, dies... Gruesomely. Horrifically. Horrifically. It was... Wow. It was awful to watch, and Mm -hmm. I was very upset. She's in the middle of asphyxiating because of a peanut allergy, and she sticks her head out the car window so she can breathe, and that is when her brother, racing down the highway to get her to a hospital, swerves to avoid roadkill, and her head sticking out the window smashes into a telephone pole. I really think that this was the moment where I was like, oh... This is not what I think it's about to be. I mean, be. that's when the movie yeah. turns. Because yeah. it's a, it starts out as a creepy kid movie. And we mm-hmm. know how creepy mm-hmm. kid movies work. We do. But suddenly the creepy kid isn't there anymore. It's, yeah. She's gone. I thought that kid was going to be in it a lot longer. Yeah. Like a lot longer. We've seen The Exorcist. We know how creepy kids work. Exactly. <laughs> We've seen The Shining. We the know Omen. how creepy, creepy kids work. But like, again, that moment was just such a shock for the audience. I think that it really kind of plays up how the family is feeling in that moment too. Because how do you even begin to it puts us in that space we share peter's horror and we continue to be horrified as he drives away leaving his sister's head by the road we are still feeling the horror when we hear annie scream from the driveway because he's just in shock and just drives home and goes to bed leaving his sister's headless body in the car yeah so for his mom to just stumble across which must like it's truly horrifying yeah and it is horrifying to watch that scene where she is crying, too, because mm-hmm. she does such a good job. Mm-hmm. So, what's going on with our marriage at this point? I mean, think about, like, Hamilton. What do you do when your child dies? I need something a bit lighter to help me through this episode. Hamilton, when your child dies, what do you do? It's unthinkable. It's it's unimaginable, if you take the Hamilton restaurant. Uh, so, this moment is kind of like a boom to an already rocky marriage, as you already said. They kind of pull away from each other. She, uh... She starts sleeping on the couch. She starts sleeping on the couch. She spends so much more time in her workshop just working on some kind of gruesome, really, like, her, her uh, miniatures. Yeah, she makes miniatures for museums, models, and she was already doing exhibits that were reflecting her complicated relationship with her mother, and they get even darker after Charlie's death. For example, she makes a model of Charlie's death. The car next to the telephone pole, the head on the ground. And doesn't see it as weird or gruesome at all. She calls it a neutral view of the accident. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Because, you know, her husband's not 
too thrilled for his son to see this model. That's what he says. Is how is Peter going to feel when he sees you yeah. making this? And he is rightly horrified it, by what happened. Exactly. And this is kind of like that first moment of, is she going crazy? Is something happening? Because you see uh, her husband being like, he's being very sane, being very like, what is going on with you? Why is it just happening to you? And so I, I personally was like, this is definitely just her going insane. Nothing else is going on. She's just going insane. And in point number two, which I assume we're about to get to. Yes, we'll hop right into it. We learned that there is a long history of very difficult mental illness in Annie's family. Mm-hmm. Issues like DID, schizophrenia, things like that. I just don't want to put any more stress on my family. I'm not even really sure if they could could give me that support. I just sometimes feel like it's all ruined. <laughs> and then I realize I am to blame. Annie goes to her support group alone without her husband. And she's spending a lot more time away from him because she just can't be with him. She can't handle feeling emotionally connected with her family Mm -hmm. because of the loss that she's experiencing. So she goes to this grief group and this is when we learn about her family's history of mental illness. Mm -hmm. It's also, I believe, when we learn about the reason that Peter is so uncomfortable with her. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that one. Which is that Annie has struggled with sleepwalking. Yeah, and where she uh, poured paint thinner in her sleep over both the kids. And herself. And herself, and then had a lit match when she woke up. And so then you're thinking, okay, so it's understandable that Peter Peter is feeling weird Because about he it. also woke up. And we also are saying, like, okay, so she has a history with kind of... Uh, uh, psychotic episodes. Psychotic episodes, mental issues. So you're thinking, okay, again, is she just crazy and nothing's actually happening? And again, just sitting watching this, just that... That suspense of not knowing which way it was going, because you have all the stuff with her mom, too, and you see her going through her journal, going through all her past belongings, and just finding Although out. most of that comes later. But just in general, feeling that sure. that that, uh, that dichotomy of, okay, creepy horror, but also just There's sneaking. There's other things going on here. Just yeah. going on. Mm. I will say, for me, I know other people are different than I am. The most unbelievable part of the romance in this movie is when Annie goes out and says, I'm going to a movie. And not only does Gabriel Byrne not go like, cool, I'm going with... <laughs> He doesn't even ask her what movie. Yeah, and I want to know what movie she's allegedly seeing. <laughs> he never asked her what movie she's seeing. He's like, okay. You kind of get the sense that he's maybe like glad she's getting out. It might be him recognizing that maybe seeing a movie alone is something she mm-hmm. needs sure. in this moment. Recognizing that he's not what she needs. And and especially since she works at home making the miniatures, mm-hmm. you can see him being like, yeah, like go out, do something away from this place, away from all the stuff that's mm-hmm. been going on with the family. Right. But like... What movie is she allegedly watching? (laughs) She's going to see another A24 release because that seems to be what's happening with streaming companies now where people in their shows watch other shows made by this company. I mean, let's be clear. The biggest person doing that is Netflix. Hulu did it too with the new Veronica Mars. Oh, really? There's an episode where... Logan says, let's watch Harlots, which is a Hulu (laughs) show. Oh, come on. And I was like... This character would never watch this show. What? Uh, but no, the crime is in the Princess Switch when one of the Vanessa Hudgenses says that her favorite movie, not favorite Christmas movie, not even favorite Netflix movie, favorite movie is a Christmas Prince. Yeah, that's no one's favorite movie because it's very bad. The worst part about seeing that Harlots bit in the Hulu thing is I went and watched Harlots after because it no, reminded Mark. me of the show. <laughs> you can't give in to that. It's lateral integration. But it's such a good show. Uh, you're part of the problem. <laughs> I am. You know that if Harlots viewership went up after that, they're like, we've cracked it. <laughs> I know. We were right to fire you back on the beginning <laughs> of the episode. I forgot I got fired. 
So anyway, <laughs> anyway, sorry. Occasionally we got to derail from this depressing story. It's <sighs> such a bummer. It's very, very, very good. One of my favorite movies of last year. It's a huge bummer. It's like somebody asked me about High Life recently, and I was like, oh, it's a deeply unpleasant movie. And they're like, it's bad. I said, no, I didn't say it was bad. I said it's unpleasant. That's a valid descriptor. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I buy I, it. I would take that. <laughs> what, so, to describe yourself? <laughs> not bad, but yeah. unpleasant. Yeah, unpleasant, you know, yeah. <laughs> He could deal with it. Yeah. Short doses. Yeah. So My ice water. At- <laughs> Stop clanking ice cubes into the microphone. So at her support group, <laughs> Annie meets a woman named Joan. All right, guys. When Ann Dowd shows up, <laughs> nothing good is happening. Speaking of, she might as well be wearing a giant red flag. I know. She should have been able to piece it together faster. She should have been like, I mean, here's this the woman she looks is very like nice. Ann Dowd. She's very nice. Yeah. And she offers to listen to Annie. No, it makes sense. She shouldn't have been able to see it, but she should be like, wow, this woman looks suspiciously like Ann Dowd. <laughs> Hulu. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Ann Dowd won an Emmy for The Handmaid's Tale, and in her speech, she thanked Hulu in her wonderful accent, and it was amazing. The Handmaid's Tale. Margaret Atwood. Thank you, Margaret. Bruce Miller. Warren Littlefield, thank you. And Hulu, and they're very lovely, Hulu. And, and MGM. She's an incredible actor. Oh, she's terrific. She was great. In this. She's good in this, yeah. She's got the creepy cult stuff. She shouts to Peter that she's banishing him. She's casting him out. Oh, which is creepy. It's very odd. So this, does this take us to point number three? Let's hop on into it. Point three. Steve makes a pass, Annie rebuffs, and starts sleeping in the treehouse. I never wanted to be your mother. Why? I was scared. I didn't feel like a mother. But she pressured me. Then why did you have me? It wasn't my fault. I tried to stop it. Well, so this is just kind of a reflection of more of what's happening in the relationship in that the separation between them, her leaving their marital bed to instead sleep in the treehouse where her daughter spent most of her time. Which, as Steve points out, is like, Freezing. It's Utah at night. Exactly. And like, there might be a space heater in there, but... I don't know that it's set in Utah, but that's where they shot it. And it looks like Utah. She has two big space heaters Mm -hmm. in there. She does, because they give it a creepy red Red light. Which is deeply upsetting. (laughs) Yeah, it is not great to look at. But I think also while we're talking about the marriage, Annie going to the grief counseling, talking to Ann Dowd, these are valuable things for a person going through grief. But what we're also seeing is that Annie is getting her emotional support, not from Steve, not from the family. Not from her son, not from her her, her husband, from Ann Dowd. She's fighting with her son. Mm. They have a giant blow up. That blow up at dinner. Oh, goodness. And there's the one scene, and it's not clear whether it's a dream or not, where she tells Peter... I never wanted to be your mom. Mm-hmm. And it's this moment of horror in this movie. Yeah. And she immediately is horrified herself, claps her hand over her mouth like she can't believe it just escaped. And is insisting, like, I'm so happy I'm your mom, but, like, this was not a thing that I wanted. And, mm-hmm. like, she tells him that she tried to have a miscarriage. And it's, in its own way, horrifying. And I feel like whether anything in the movie is a dream or not, I feel like it's all just very true. Like, uh, it's, like, whatever, like, the character it's very much what the characters is, are feeling. Yeah. So if it was a dream or not, you can probably like take them that and she never did want to have them in that these are more of those strains that are on the relationship and it's part of that ongoing issue of what is real what mm-hmm. is not what is a choice and what is not i think the miniatures reflect that well yeah. too Oof. we start off 
at the beginning of the movie, closing in on the house, moving into a room, and then it's Peter's bedroom, and Gabriel Byrne has gone to wake him up for the grandmother's funeral. Mm-hmm. It's the are, sense that these are playthings of a larger force. If there are miniatures, you know it's never going to go good. Unless it's Wallace and Gromit, because they're miniatures. Yes. They go to the moon, it's the made of cheese. Moon? I was trying to remember if in that Wallace had tinier versions of Wallace and Gromit <laughs> also made of clay. And I was like, I don't remember that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. He'd probably make them out of cheese. He would. Mm. I love Wallace and Gromit. They're great. I've seen that movie in years. Everything from Ardman is just cute. It is. See, the one that we always watched was Chicken Run. Well, yeah, Chicken Run is superior. <laughs> the penguin is one of the evilest creatures of any <laughs> piece of media, though. The evil penguin that dresses as a rooster to confuse everyone by putting a glove on his head. I forgot about that. And it works. Chickens are very dumb. That's why we make them into pies. That's crow pie. You're confused. That's what Mark was eating a few weeks ago. When he was fired? You know the penguin's not in a movie with chickens, right? No, I do not. (laughs) (laughs) He's in one of the Wallace and Gromit shorts. Okay, I think it's the first one with Shaun the Sheep. Well, they're dumb too. People? Wallace and Gromit, yeah. Oh, yes. At least Wallace is. Yeah. Gromit is very responsible. So anyway, Annie, going deep with Ann Dowd. Ann Dowd shows her how to do a seance. Oh, Lord. This where point Ann, four. Ann Dowd summons her grandson. And Annie naturally freaks yeah. out. It was. Uh, that. I think this was the moment where you're like, okay, yep. Nope. Something supernatural is. is happening. Here it is. Because nothing is writing on this chalkboard. What? No, 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 no. Listen, when I did this earlier... This manifested on the page. I saw it. So I tell what what is it? It's Charlie. Did you finish, Charlie? Did you want to draw some more? You can keep going. Stop it. Stop it. We need to keep our fingers touching. You are scaring me. No, I am not. Peter, Peter, listen. Stop it. (laughs) Yeah, the chalk is just moving itself. Well, we know it's not nothing now because it's Paymon that's doing it. Right. (laughs) Of course. But the chalk is moving and it's horrifying. Annie freaks out, but she can't get this out of her head. And Dowd gives her an incantation and directions on how to do a seance herself. And so point four, one night in the middle of the night, Annie wakes up her family and is like, we have to do this. I've just done this thing and I need you to see it. And they go downstairs and she's got all the windows open. So it's freezing and she's got candles set up. And she's insisting that they hold a seance to summon Charlie. I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. Yeah. They keep talking about how cold it is outside, but their jackets are never that thick. (laughs) I know you're like a jacket truther when it comes to movies. (laughs) I mean, like, it's like those uh, where it's during the day. It's like, okay, a bit nippy. But then like when actually cold, cold, cold at night, you just don't go outside. I think that's what it is. I think it's much colder at night. But when Charlie goes to the party, she's wearing a light orange hoodie. Charlie makes weird choices. She slept in the treehouse. She chopped off the bird's head. Peter's not wearing a very heavy coat either. Peter's got to look hot for that girl from his English class. Mm, I'm not buying it. He's smoking weed in the back. I'm not buying it. These people are wimps when it comes to cold. (laughs) The parents are. That's my my belief. Fine. So anyway, they have the seance. (laughs) And they successfully summon Charlie, which is creepy as all get out. Yeah. So Peter... Alex Wolf, their son, starts freaking out. He starts crying, which is when Gabriel Byrne steps in. Which was the right response. Like, once in uh, college, a friend of mine was like, um, 
hey, Josh, do you have Amazon Prime? I'm like, yeah, sure. What do you need to get? She's like, I want to get a Ouija board. I was like, absolutely not. I am not inviting that onto my Amazon Prime. <laughs> I just want to know what Mess the recommendations are. Like, once you buy a Ouija board, what are you also interested in I'm according to Amazon? I'm other Hasbro games. Because let's remember, that's what Ouija boards are. Right, exactly. Uh, it's Monopoly, the same company that makes the Jeff. action figures I buy. Yeah. So I loved when peter was crying because he does such the deep child like heaving mm-hmm. sobs the like coughing sounds so well and i think it's great too because like he looks like a big kid but like he's a kid he's yeah. in high yeah. school and we see how upset he is by this and i mean you you see um just kids in media being portrayed by older people but seeing how he broke down like that and really being faced with that he's like 15 16 yeah and that is Ten years ago, I was a child. That's, yeah, that is, it's it's such an amazing performance. And Annie is refusing to stop the seance. She's yeah. like, look, it's going great. Mm-hmm. And, and it takes, uh, and say Howard, her husband's name? Steve oh, is Steve adamant that they need to stop. Yeah. And that's when suddenly the flame bursts, bursts much oh brighter. And it's terrifying. Yeah, so, so seances where you summon your dead child probably aren't great. For your marriage. Steve is not happy with Annie about this. Yeah. And they don't seem to be talking at this Mm -hmm. point. No. Not like at all. And in the wake of this, we also see Steve starts contacting psychologists and saying like, I think Annie is on the verge of or possibly in the middle of a severe mental episode. Like, I need help here. Right. Because, you know, he is a psychiatrist, but you can't treat your own wife. Right. And so he's reaching out for help. He's trying to take care of his family, but you can see that he is at his wit's end. He doesn't understand what's happening, and he doesn't know what to do. Steve is truly doing the best he can. He's doing everything he can in a situation where he has no control. Like, even even versus uh, whether it is the, uh, the predetermination of the kind of demon powers over them, he's just, like, in a lifeboat out at sea trying to stay above water. Right, he has as little agency as Peter yeah. does. Whereas, like, Annie has a little more agency mm-hmm. in all this. She at least knows that supernatural something is going on. And she makes the choice to have the seance. And she has the belief in it, whereas exactly. Steve doesn't really. Yeah, which He's... takes us to our fifth point, when Annie comes up one night mm-hmm. and grabs Steve and is like, I need you to come down with me. I'm not going to do this with you anymore. <laughs> no, no, it's not helpful for you. You are sick, Annie. I need to call the police. Uh, Annie, she has grabbed Charlie's sketchbook, which was which, which she, what she was writing in during the seance to prove that, that they were communicating with her. Right. Charlie would often draw kind of creepy drawings of people. Yeah. We know that she was drawing her grandmother at the funeral. And what we've seen now is that since Annie has been conducting these seances... Over and over again, we're seeing their son, Peter's face, with the eyes crossed out mm-hmm. over and over again in this notebook. And Annie is telling Steve, I think we can destroy this evil presence if we destroy this notebook. Because she has already tried to destroy the notebook. But when she threw it into the fire... Her sleeve like just caught fire out of nowhere. Yeah, and so it didn't go out until she pulled the book out and put the fire out. Mm-hmm. So she's telling Steve, I need you to destroy this book because I can't bring myself to kill myself essentially but i need to die to banish the evil from our family and to protect peter right and because this is the point where she started to put everything together that that uh peter's supposed to be the the i guess the vessel for paymon right by this point she has also discovered her mother's decapitated body rotting (sighs) in the attic which is part of this climax of her marriage where she tells steve like oh my gosh 
you need to see what I found there. I think it's my mother's body. And, and Steve thinks she's, ju- thinks she's crazy. He's like, what are you talking about? What's in the attic? And then he goes up. He freaks out. Because he thinks she desecrated the grave. Right. He's saying, like, I tried to protect you from what happened because I didn't think you could handle it. But clearly, you're the person who did this. Like, mm-hmm. something is wrong. Like, you need help and I can't help you. And she takes him down to destroy the book. And she's like, I need you to do this. I'm going to die if you throw this book in the fire. But that's what it's going to take. And she grabs him and she says, you are the love of my life. Mm. And repeats over and over again, I love you, and I love our son. And Steve tells her he can't do it. He can't be a part of what he sees as her kind of... Her madness. Her episode, yeah. Yeah, he can't feed into it and make it worse. And by this point, she had forced the notebook in her hands, and Annie, desperate to escape the curse of her family, rushes him, grabs the notebook, and throws it into the fire, expecting herself to immolate in that moment. And instead, Steve does. Bursts into flames. Fully. And thus ends the romance of the film Hereditary. <laughs> ending their marriage. Yeah, some other stuff happens, but that's not our job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the romance is over, so we are done. All right, so we've discussed the romance of Ari Aster's 2018 film Hereditary. And what I would like to know, Mark and Josh, is do you find it believable? Joshua. Taking only the romance into, uh, taking the rules of the world into account. Yes, it's a beautifully portrayed kind of just romance in in crisis whether it's from uh, the great god paimon or just from a, a a daughter that's died i feel like both actors do an amazing job like just portraying these two people who are again trying their best to keep their heads above water in an unimaginable situation so it, i think yes i agree i think it is believable apparently horror films that we watch do a pretty good job <laughs> yeah. depicting relationships in crisis. I feel like we gotta do like a dumb like slasher horror to look at the <laughs> I, romance there. I honestly find those boring. Like I don't get that scared so yeah. I have no interest. Maybe one day. Maybe, Maybe. Sharknado. Okay the romance of Sharknado is interesting because you've got two <laughs> romantic pairs. You've got Ian Ziering the lead and his ex-wife Tara Reed, and then you've got what's the girl's name Nova Nova obviously <laughs> yeah. the only interesting character of that film and she's dating that like teenage boy so you've actually got a lot to dig into hey upcoming episode <laughs> all right so maybe Sharknado's coming up <laughs> send us an email at lovethelovepod at gmail.com yeah this is one where we will respond to demands now every week we take the romance that we're talking about and we put it on a numerical scale to rate its believability, where zero means we don't believe anything that happens romantically, and ten is we believe all of it. So, Josh, what I'm wondering is, where do you place the romance of Hereditary? Um, eight? Nine, even. Pretty high. Will? Yeah, I'm thinking it's probably a nine for me. I think it's very, very believable. Um, I think that given their family history and some of the particularly dark things that have happened, I'm surprised Steve waits as long as he does mm. yeah. to take action. That's that's my feeling, too. Especially as a psychiatrist. Right. Mm. So that, for me, is what brings it down a little bit. I guess, like, you could argue that he kind of is, like, at his wit's end, is kind of just like... I mean, he himself has to be hit pretty hard by the death of his daughter. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, it's kind of the both of them just trying to survive and that him... That's why him I'm not hitting it too hard for it. Wrapping himself yeah. in his own cocoon of, like... You'd think that he would be bringing them... To, like, grief counseling or yeah. something. Because Plus, my other believability thing, what movie is she going to see? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you guys think that Annie or Steve is dateable? Steve, absolutely. Definitely. Steve, yes. Steve is great. Annie. 
the thing about Annie is that even at the beginning of the movie, like, when it's just her mom's funeral and, and she's working on her art and things like that, she's kind of unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's never a very likable character. No. Which I think is an interesting part of the performance. Yeah. We see her driven to madness by what's happening around her, but she starts off not as this, like, you know, friendly, cheery person. She is somebody who has lived a very difficult life, and I empathize with her, but I yeah. do not want to be romantically involved with her. And no. I think that uh, kind of was made clear in the uh, the group counseling scene that she, while she had lived a difficult life, she didn't really, like, go to a therapist or really do much to kind of combat that. So There's a sense that she also, when you think about the way that she talks about the incident with the paint thinner, that she's not somebody who acknowledges the ways that her actions impact other people. You think about how she can't see how Peter would understand the diorama of Charlie's death. You think about her target like, yeah, I was sleepwalking. I don't sleepwalk anymore, so I don't get what Peter's deal is. Mm -hmm. She's somebody who you feel being in a relationship with her would be very difficult. Yeah, Yeah. she seems very self-centered. Now, if you did have to pick one person in this movie to date Joshua, who would it be? Ooh, I forgot to think about this question. Is Midge in this movie? She is not. Um, hmm... And Dowd. What? She's so bad. She's like the worst <laughs> She's choice. She's like the villain of the movie. She has goals. I admire her. Okay. Not Yikes. the end result. Yikes. Hey, her yes. stick-to-itiveness. Um, not really... the choice I would have made. I think my answer's gotta be Steve. He's yeah, clearly he's the best good. option. My choice. He promises wealth and power. <laughs> oh, so no. the answer is obviously King Paimon. Riches to the Conjurer. Oh Riches God. to the Conjurer. He is a king of hell. I could be a great queen of hell. I believe that that is a role I'd be willing to inherit. I'd make a few changes to the place. <laughs> what are they? Uh, some scented candles. They would burn well. Like a lot of a lot of scented candles because I have a feeling they'd burn down pretty fast. Help cover up the brimstone smell. Burning flesh. Valid. All that. Um, Do they have to be hell themed scented candles? I think you want to bring, like, the taste of home, so Maryland, Old Bay. Yeah, you know, Old Bay scented candles. <laughs> Go well with the burning flesh. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> mm, a barbecue. Oh, Lord. Uh, they would also provide and light Dowd because hell is apparently both fire and darkness and cold, based off of depictions of hell. Depending on your mythology. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think there's only one logical choice, and it's Paymon himself. And in the end, his vessel is a former member of the Naked Brothers Band. Indeed. Another source of wealth, I'm assuming. <laughs> the royalties are just rolling in. <laughs> it can only be the biggest paycheck. It can only go up from here. <laughs> All right, Annie and Steve don't stay together because uh, Steve was immolated and Annie beheads herself. <laughs> so what that leaves us with is the fact that many, many, many of the movies we have covered on this show have been turned into stage musicals, including some of the ones more akin to this, like Don't Forget About the Opera adaptation of the fly so the question is should hereditary be made into a stage musical no thank you we can do the like i mean annie flings up in the air we saw that in wicked you've seen it in mary poppins spider-man turned off the dark like where the first time they tried it i think someone may have died so which is great for this movie (laughs) it really fits the vibe so the question is should there be a hereditary musical Yes. Still gonna go. No, I mean, the, the evidence is there. Unless Tony one song Collette. is entirely scored to tongue clicks. <laughs> Unless Tony Collette is willing to reprise her role, which you know she would, because she's that great of an actress. So we'll leave it up to you. Uh, <laughs> if you think Hereditary should be turned into a musical, uh, tweet it at us. Let us know. I think that about does it for the film Hereditary. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Check but it out. Also, it's great. get ready for heartbreak and horror. 
Yay! Speaking of horror, next week we will be extending our spooktacular. We're celebrating the release of Terminator Dark Fate by talking about the one that started it all, 1984's The Terminator. It is much more akin to a film like Hereditary than it is to a film like Terminator 2. Indeed. In many ways. It's a monster movie, and we're going to talk about that. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular really help other people to find the show. Last question, friends. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? Don't invite demons into your home. Especially not your marriage bed. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Mm-hmm. I think for me, the best dating advice would have to be... If someone's going to the movies, ask them what they're going to see. Because if not, they'll invite a demon into your home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very, very true. That's been my experience. I always ask, and no one has invited a demon into my home that I know of, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, you already heard who I've tried to date from this movie. Uh, my advice is if you're at a party with your sibling who you know has allergies, make sure to help them remember to be careful with their allergies or else they will you know cause you to leave the party before finishing flirting with a girl and Uh, then they also won't get their heads chopped off all right well there you go until next time i'm a ginger and i'm gay and i'm black and so between the three of us we know everything there is to know about romance Bye. Bye. bye Bye.